This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll. I was on the phone this week with Scott Cunningham. Scott and Marissa are our church planters up in Madison, Wisconsin. And he was telling me a story that reminded me of the feeding of the 5,000 because of God's supernatural provision. But what was really beautiful about this story is God not only met a need for Scott and Marissa in a really powerful way, but while meeting their need, he was actually doing things in the community of Christ Church Madison, the, the, the church plant. He was not only solving their problem, he was making himself known to the people of Christ Church. So here's the story. Uh, Scott and Marissa had bought a house, so, and they had a certain date that they had to leave where they were living. That date had come, so all of their vans were, were packed with all their stuff, and they, they drove to the new house, and they had their team around them ready to unload and move in, but as soon as they pulled in, they found out, they were told, you can't get in, it's not ready yet, maybe a week or two. So there they are, stuck, all their stuff, and they can't go back to where they were because they had to be out that day, all packed up, nowhere to go, they're stuck, they're feeling like the disciples saying, 200 denarii are not enough. What are we doing? So they're calling everybody, they're trying to think of everything, and they call the Olson family. Now, here's the story on the Olsons. They're a family from here, Resurrection, who back in the fall started discerning their own journey. Are we called to sell our house here move up to Madison in order to serve the church in Madison. And through their own ups and downs, and the stakes are high for them, they have teenagers, so it, it really is a journey of discernment for them, but eventually they came to the place where they said, yes, we, we think we're called to do this. So Scott and Marissa are thinking, I, I think the Olsons have a house, maybe I, let's call and just see. So they call, and Steve and Julie are driving back from Madison. They said, yeah, actually, 30 minutes ago, we just signed the closing papers. As of 30 minutes ago, the house is ours. And we won't need it. We're, we're, we're heading back to Wheaton for a season. Here's the garage code. Have fun. I was talking to Scott, and he said, we've, we've had a lot of problems like this lately. Just to name one more, the same week that this happened, they found out that other furniture that had been stored in a different place had been all chewed through by mice. So they're just seeing problem after problem after problem. They're feeling assaulted, overwhelmed. And yet, here's what Scott said. Our neediness has brought the church together and is helping others, and even those who are still very young in their faith, he's helping others encounter who God is precisely in our neediness and weakness. So he's saying... This has been a rough couple of weeks, but I wouldn't have it any other way. And Scott's favorite part of, of this story is he said, yeah, God met our need, but he was doing something else. You see, for Steve and Julie, who are discerning, do we move up to Madison or not? That's a big move. This was for them the final confirmation. When, when they were able to say, absolutely, this is why we're making this move, is to serve the church and to serve you guys. And 30 minutes after signing the closing, they're able to do that in a real concrete way. They said, we made the right choice. And it was confirmed to them. So Scott loves this story because not only was their need met, their need met but also Steve and Julie were ministered to in a powerful way. God met a need but he was also making himself known to the community of Christ Church. Now they've got a story to tell about God's goodness and power. And that's exactly the point of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is not just meeting a need. He's making himself known. 
So the crowd has a need. They're hungry. The disciples also have a need. Jesus said, where are we going to find bread? He's picking on Philip because Philip is from Bethsaida. And they're, of all the towns, that's probably the one closest by. So he's saying, do you know any good bagel shops, Philip? We've got to find food for all these people. And the disciples are like Scott and Marissa in the driveway, freaking out. We, we can't solve this problem. They're facing a problem. They have a need. The crowd is hungry. They have a need. Now, ours may not be the ancient world where we know hunger like this crowd knew hunger, but we still know what it means to be needy. Again, maybe not physical hunger so much, although that is one of the merits of fasting, is that for at least a day, you know what many other people throughout the world and many people throughout history experience from time to time, physical hunger. But alongside of physical hunger, there are desires that go deeper than physical hunger, that often feel unmet, and we're saying that that is a need, a desire, and I'm not sure that it's being satisfied. You also know the neediness that comes attendant with all of the pressures and the problems that we face in everyday life. And Jesus wants to do more than just meet your need. We often ask for too little. But in our neediness, he wants to make himself known. In our neediness, he wants to reveal himself to us and to the world. He wants to show the glory of God and draw others to himself. He can transform our neediness. In the story of the 5,000, he's more than just meeting a need. He's making himself known. So this story of the 5,000, it's one of the most important miracle stories in the New Testament because aside from the cross and the resurrection, there's no other story that makes it in all four Gospels except for the feeding of the 5,000. So we know it's important. Um, but it is a very familiar story, so I thought I'd, I'd help us try to envision it uh, a little bit. So these are not barley loaves. These are English muffins. But when it's talking about barley loaves, it's not loaves of bread in the way you and I normally think of it. It's, it's more like barley cakes about the size of an English muffin. When I was a kid and I would read the story, I thought it was pronounced barely loaves because it was barely enough for the crowd. And because we'd never eaten barley bread. What's barley bread? So enough food that you can hold in one hand. Now let's imagine the crowd. This sanctuary fits about 1,000 people if every seat is filled. So imagine every seat is filled, but that's only 1,000 people. So you have to imagine another sanctuary adjacent, equally as large, equally full, another sanctuary adjacent over there, and two more behind, and that's 5,000, but that's just the men. So now we have to add a second level of five sanctuaries for all the women, and maybe a third and fourth level for all the children. So we're talking... Four stories of five filled sanctuaries of people. Can we begin to get a grasp of the size of this crowd? And this is what Jesus has to feed them with. Plus two basically salted minnows. The word in John for the fish is very small fish. They were basically a relish. The Gospel of John calls this miracle a sign. And that's his favorite word for any mighty work or miracle uh, that is done. And in fact, at the end of the book of John, he helps us out because he says really clearly, here is the reason that I'm writing this book. So listen to what he says and pay attention to the word signs when you hear them. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these signs, including the feeding of the 5,000, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is saying that's the purpose of this whole book, and every story in it, including the 5,000, is in some way pointing to that reality. Jesus is the source of eternal life. This feeding of the 5,000 is simply a sign to point to that greater reality. All right, so when you're going down to the Bulls game, downtown Chicago, and you're driving down 290 and you see the sign, United Center, you don't pull off of 290, park under the sign, and camp out for the night looking up at the sign. You're not going to watch any basketball that way. You follow the sign, and you come to the United Center, you go inside, and that's where you watch the game. So as amazing as this miracle is of the feeding of the 5,000, we're not to get stuck on the miracle and miss the meaning. What this miracle is revealing about Jesus Now, for that United Center sign to work, it has to point the right way, okay? The sign has to be accurate. And for the feeding of the 5,000 to be an accurate sign, it has to to come close to speaking to something of what Jesus has come to reveal. So here is what this sign is revealing about Jesus. It's revealing the magnitude of his power and the power that he has to give life, right? Because in the ancient world, bread equals life. Jesus has the power to give life. And to illustrate his power, let's take a look at what Andrew says in verse 9. So Andrew, Andrew comes and he says, there is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now Andrew, being a pious Jew, likely knows about a story in the Old Testament that's very similar to this story. So Elisha, the prophet, And and the way the story is written in both the Old Testament and here in John, it's parallel. So John is intentionally trying to make a connection and say, yes, I have that story in mind. So in the Old Testament story, Elisha is with a crowd of prophets. There's 100 of them, and they don't have any food. Somebody comes, and they have 20 loaves of bread. Guess what kind of bread? Barley bread. Not an accident. And the servant says to Elisha, we've got 20 loaves of barley bread, but there's 100 people here. How are we going to feed them? And Elisha says, don't worry about it. Set the food before the people. They all eat, and they're satisfied, and they have leftover. Okay, parallel language. Likely, Andrew is thinking about that story when he has the five barley loaves. Because he's saying, I I know Elisha did that, and and that was a pretty amazing miracle, but that was 100 people, about maybe the number of people in these two center sections. 100 people with 20 loaves. We're looking at 15 to 20,000 people and five little loaves of barley. So Andrew is saying, this is a whole new league we're talking about here. And that's exactly what this sign is meant to say. The conclusion we're meant to draw is, yeah, Jesus is no mere human prophet. As amazing as Elisha was, Jesus is far greater. We look at this miracle and we say, only God could do a miracle like that. This is the power of God. Yes. And only God and only the power of God can save us from the power of death, which is the real need that Jesus came to meet. And that's the real point of this story and the whole gospel of John. But when we follow the rest of the story, when we read past just the feeding of the 5,000 to the rest of chapter 6, we see that the the crowd 
didn't get the point. They were stuck at the sign, and they didn't go to the United Center. They didn't go to where the sign was pointing. So after feeding the 5,000, Jesus goes up on the mountain. His disciples go out on the lake. He, in the middle of the night, walks out on the water, joins them, and then the next day, they're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The crowd wakes up, and they see Jesus is gone and his disciples, so they run on foot around the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and they find him at Capernaum. And when they find him, they come, and they're asking for another free lunch. So look at verse 26. Jesus said, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, and not because you're following the signs and what they're pointing to. You're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. The same one who fed the multitude yesterday, I can give you so much more than bread for a day. Now, we can forgive the crowd for wanting a free lunch. Right? Keep in mind that it's the ancient world. It was much harder to actually get your daily bread. And these people in particular, being Galileans, they were most likely peasant farmers and peasant fishermen who ate what they worked for every day. We might look at this story and say, is it really possible that only a boy was the only one who had the forethought to bring food? Or were they lazy? Did they lack forethought? Well, no, there was no food to pack. You worked for the food that you ate each day. And they actually took a remarkable risk in taking a day or two off of work to go pursue Jesus. Because if you didn't work, you didn't eat that day. So we can forgive them for saying, how about another free lunch? But Jesus is saying, I've come to do so much more than that. You're asking, what you're asking for is actually too little. And they say, oh, okay, but if you're really the new Moses, give us food every day. That's what Moses did. Give us a free lunch every day, and then we'll believe that you're the redeemer. You're, you're the one, the prophet we've been waiting for. And Jesus replies, and follow me in verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. The bread that I'm talking about, this bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus in this dialogue is essentially saying, hey, look, first of all, it wasn't Moses who gave the Israelites bread from heaven. It was my father in heaven. And, and second of all, that didn't actually solve the problem. That bread didn't solve the problem. It just postponed the problem. What's the problem? The problem is death. They ate food and they didn't die that day, but eventually they all died. That's what he said. They ate man in the wilderness, but they all died. Jesus is saying, now my father has sent a new bread from heaven. And this bread is different from the manna. If you eat this bread from heaven, you will not die, but you will live forever. Jesus doesn't just postpone the problem. He says, I've come to solve it once and for all. So the crowd says, okay, give us that bread. Where do we find it? And Jesus says, it's me. I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. If you feast on me, he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have life in you. And at this point, 
the disciples, many of them, of this crowd who saw this amazing thing just the next day, many of them are scandalized and they desert Jesus to the point where he turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter famously says, where else would we go? You have the words of life. But almost the entire crowd that had just been miraculously fed, now they're deserting him because what he just said, feast on me and you will live forever. They couldn't take it in. Now the disciples, maybe they weren't scandalized, they hung around, but perhaps they were a little bit confused. Jesus, what did you mean when you said, eat my flesh, eat me, feast on me? And the aha moment comes for the disciples a year later when Jesus is in the Last Supper and he says, you remember a year ago on the hillside when I fed the 5,000 and I said, eat me and you'll live forever? Okay, here's what I meant. This bread is my body. Eat it. This wine, this is my blood. Drink it. And for the disciples, that was the, ah, now we get it. And if you want to know where do we get our basic Eucharistic theology, spend some time studying John chapter 6. You all have it. It's right there in your Bibles. John 6 plus uh, the, the stories about the Last Supper is where we get our basic Eucharistic theology. So when we look at the rest of the chapter, we begin to understand what the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was really about. Jesus met earthly hunger with heavenly power in order to show that our heavenly hunger can also be satisfied in him. He's not just meeting a need. He's making himself known. But the hunger of the crowd wasn't the only need in this story. All right, so go back to verse 5. Again, he's picking on Philip because Philip's from Bethsaida. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So he puts this problem on the disciples. You feed the crowd. They're facing a massive problem. And yet Jesus, the whole time, he knows what he's going to do. They do not. All they see is problem, headache, crisis, shortage. How are we going to make this work? And, and I feel like the disciples most days of the week. I'm looking around and I see need, problem, crisis, shortage. Where Jesus is looking and he's saying, you know, this actually is a potential for me to reveal my glory. Your problems are my potential to show myself to you and to the world. But it's not hard for us. It's not hard for any of us to imagine how the disciples felt, saying, how's this going to work? Probably even in the last week, every one of you at some point or another has said, 200 denarii, you're not enough. Maybe not in those exact words. But you've been looking at the bank statement, the credit card statement, the loan statement, the hospital bill. You've been discussing and looking at your financial forecast, and you're saying, how is this going to work? We don't have enough. Or you're looking at the amount of physical pain that you're in, and you're saying, I don't know how I or my family is going to make it. I don't have what it takes. You're looking at work deadlines, school deadlines, responsibilities are piling up. You're looking at relationships around you where you're falling behind, and you know it. You're feeling behind, and you're saying, I don't have enough. I feel very needy right now. I feel weak and like I'm going to be exposed. And in 20 minutes, everybody's going to find out that I'm actually a fraud and a phony. And, and I'm going to be sent away in exile. That's what we're feeling. We've also had those Scott and Marissa moments, right, where we're being told, 
wait, what? We can't get in? Or you lost the what? Or the, no, 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 I, I know I reserved the reception hall for tomorrow. We've all had those moments. But what if Jesus really was bigger than our needs? What if Jesus really is bigger than our needs? Or more to the point of the story today, what if Jesus really could transform our neediness into his nearness? Because just like for the multitude 2,000 years ago, Jesus wants to do more than just meet your needs. He wants to reveal himself to you. And he wants to reveal himself to the world precisely through and in your neediness. How many times have I felt or have heard from others, ah, if I just were free of this one particular crisis or this situation, then I could really be a good Christian or then I could really move forward in my life or whatever. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, that's the very crisis in which you're going to be transformed. And in your neediness and weakness, I'm going to reveal my glory to the world. And we say, no, anything but that. He said, trust me, I will transform your neediness. Or another way to put it, I'll transform you in your neediness. So we no longer have to be afraid of being needy or weak or vulnerable. Because God uses our neediness to reveal his nearness. He uses our problems to reveal his power. He uses our failures to reveal his faithfulness and our trials to show his faithfulness. And he's saying, I want to do so much more than just meet your need or solve your problem. I want to reveal myself to you and reveal my glory to the world through you. And in this, you can count on it. You can bet. Always his voice is speaking. He's saying, do you know what it is that I want to reveal to you more than anything? Here's what I want to say to you. In every need, in every crisis, I want to remind you, I am near. I am strong. I am good. And you can trust me now and forever. Whatever else he's wanting to reveal through the midst of our crises and needs, that he is always wanting to reveal. That he is near, powerful, he is good, and we can trust him. And he can actually use our hunger, our desires that sometimes feel unsatisfied, unmet. Will they ever be satisfied? Will they ever be met? He can use our hungers and deep desires and say, draw near to me in those hungers. And sometimes we are like the crowd. We're hungry. And maybe there are some of you that are coming this morning and you would say to Jesus, yeah, Jesus, I'm hungry. I have desires, I have needs, and I don't even know if they're all good or not, but I know that I'm hungry. And Jesus would say to you, I know. And I know what you're hungry for. And I really can take care of your hunger. I can do that but I want you to know that I'm trying to do something even more than that. I want to do so much more than take care of your hunger because there is a hunger that I've come to satisfy that you barely even know about because it is so deep. That's what I've come to satisfy. So will you trust me in your hunger? Will you feast on me? Sometimes we're like the disciples and all we see is need, problem, shortage, scarcity, crisis. And he's saying, I can also take your problems. And right in the midst of your problems, I can reveal my glory to you and to the world through you. So one story that really illustrates this well is from the Old Testament. 
Hezekiah was king of Jerusalem. He was one of the good kings, one of the great kings. And under him, Judah and Jerusalem experienced a spiritual revival that was unprecedented up to that time. And yet shortly after, during his reign, the king of Assyria was on a campaign where he basically wiped out all of the kingdoms of the eastern Mediterranean world, and he had wiped out even all the cities of Judah, and had circled his noose around Jerusalem, and the noose was tightening. Talk about a problem. You would not want to be Hezekiah, leader of the city, when hundreds of thousands of soldiers are there at your gate. And the leader of the Assyrian army writes Hezekiah a letter and says, who do you think you are trusting in the Lord? Have any of the gods of the other nations rescued them? It will be the same with you. And I love what Hezekiah does. He takes that letter. He goes into the house of the Lord. He says, you've got a problem. You've got to fix it. But here's amazing. At the end of his prayer for deliverance, he closes the prayer by saying, so now, O Lord, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord. So he's not just saying, save my city. He is saying, save my city. But even in the midst of this incredible pressure, he has not lost sight of the glory of God. And he's saying, but more than anything, reveal your glory in the world. He's saying, you're not like, you're not more powerful than the gods of the other nation. Prove him wrong and reveal your glory. And God does. And he wipes out the entire army overnight. But I love Hezekiah's response. He's saying, do more than just meet my need. Make yourself known. Reveal your glory to the world. And what if, when we meet a problem, what if our first response, rather than freak out and panic like we all do and and I do, what if we grow in our ability to trust and we have the presence of mind and of spirit to pause and to say, God, you've got a problem Would you solve this problem? But more than that, would you reveal yourself to me? And would you reveal your glory to the world precisely through this problem? God, help me, but reveal your glory. So when needs arise, whether it's hunger, whether it's a problem, pressure, when needs arise, let's pause and pray and say to God, would you use this need to show yourself to me And show yourself to the world around me. Would you reveal your glory precisely in this need? May God give us the grace to turn to him when needs arise. And God, we do pray that in our needs, you would reveal your glory. That you would do more signs and wonders. Not for the sake of signs and wonders themselves. But to point to your eternal love and your eternal power. And the power to save us from our greatest need and problem. The power of death. And use us to reveal your glory to the world around us, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.